Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This episode is a continuation of our series in the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And now, moving into the back half of this series, Jim Jordan is going to give an overview of Genesis chapter 35. We had two fantastic articles on the website this week. We had one on God's pattern in creation, which was a speech given to some high schoolers and junior high schoolers. Here, Eric Green gives a great example of how to take the Theopolitan approach to reading scripture and giving it to youth. The other article by Alexander Whitaker deals with C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain and helps to move that discussion forward. So to find out more, there is a link to our blog and to these two specific articles in our show notes. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan giving an overview of Genesis chapter 35. What I'd like to do to begin with is remind you of where we are. We're moving back out of the Jacob narrative, and so if you look at the two G sections here, which is chapter 26 and 34, essentially, or at the beginning of chapter 26 and the end of chapter 34, we find the Gentiles accept Isaac and now we have the Gentiles rejecting Jacob. And long ago when we studied chapter 26, which is the story of Jacob in Gerar with Abimelech and digging the wells and contending for the wells and then finally the Gentiles making covenant with him, I pointed out that that is chiastically parallel to chapter 34, where we again encounter Gentiles, but things go the other way. So I'd like to review that comparison now that we are finished with chapter 34, and then we'll see how the passage continues to move out as we go. So first of all, chapters 26 and 34, some of the parallels that are important for comparing and contrasting the themes that both Isaac and Jacob have had sons when these events happen. In other words, Isaac's sons are born. Remember, we talked about this at the time. We have the two sons struggling in the womb, and then they're born, and Isaac loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob, and then Jacob bought the birthright from Esau for a bowl of lentils. And then we read about a famine and going down to Gerar, and there's nothing said about Jacob and Esau. It's like they've disappeared. And the commentator said, well, where are they? If you've got a couple of little boys with you, then everybody would have known that Jacob and Rebekah were married. How could he pass her off as his sister? And we said that probably the men were grown by that time, and so they could be passed off as men who were part of the clan or part of the company of Isaac's household. Or they may not even have gone on this trip, but almost certainly they would have since we've got about a ten-year span of time here. So we've got sons, but the sons don't figure in the narrative. We go into this Gentile territory, the Gentiles give us a hard time about the wells, but we don't read that Jacob and Esau did anything. They're absent from consideration, and it's an obvious absence because they're born, they're grown up, they bargain for the birthright, and yet here is a situation where we're dealing with Gentiles, and the sons don't do anything. 
When we come to this other story, which is exactly parallel to it in the narrative structure, and we're dealing with Gentiles, and we're having a hard time with Gentiles, and the father steps back and the sons do everything. So there's a big change, and the contrast between the two highlights the change in the covenant that's happened in between. And we said that change is that we've now become a nation. We're not just a clan or a father with some sons and some hired hands. We are becoming something of a nation, and the nation has to make decisions and not just the patriarch. We'll say more about that as we go. Well, in chapter 26, Isaac, acting by himself, acts very wisely. He doesn't get into a fight with these Gentiles. Even when they try to pick a fight with him, he acts wisely, and the result is that the Gentiles are converted and make an alliance with him, and everything is very smooth and peaceful. His sons don't do anything. Now, Jacob is a replacement for Isaac, and since Jacob is a morally perfect man, so to speak, as the passage tells us, he is exemplary for wisdom, we can assume he would have acted wisely, too, in chapter 34. So, if it had been up to him, he would have allowed Shechem to marry Dinah because he loved her, and because they wanted to make covenant with them, he would have been wise in dealing with it. But he doesn't deal with it, and he allows the sons. He's now become something of a king. He's in charge of a nation here, and he has to let his sons do the acting. And that becomes the problem. Number five down here, their folly, the folly of the sons, introduces a further complication into the covenant narrative, which has to be worked out in the Joseph narrative, just as Isaac's folly set up the complication and had to be worked out in the Jacob narrative. So you have... The covenant made with Abraham, and then Isaac almost destroys it. And what Isaac does in preferring Esau over Jacob and disobeying God sets up a bunch of difficulties and complications that run on down and have to be worked out. Everything is stolen from Esau. Jacob has to make up what Isaac stole from Esau, and so forth and so on. And the conflict between the two, which could have been resolved, I mean, if Esau had grown up knowing all along that God had said Jacob was to be preferred, then the conflict would not have been anywhere near as intense. Well, when you grow up for 77 years and your father dismisses what Rebecca says and dismisses the word of God and says, I'm going to give everything to you, Esau, and then Jacob gets it all, well, then you see you've got a huge amount of tension. I'm sure Esau would not have been terribly happy to think that his younger brother was going to inherit everything. But on the other hand, if he'd grown up with that idea his entire life, and considering that they were only about 15 minutes difference in age anyway, however long it takes for twins to be born, it would not have been anywhere near the amount of conflict. So Isaac produces this huge conflict that has to be worked out. And Jacob has to acquire wisdom. Jacob has to leave the promised land. He has to go off to Laban. All the complications are brought about by Isaac's sin. Well, now we've got the sin of these sons. I mean, Jacob has managed to get the covenant back the way it's supposed to be. And now the sons have sinned, and they are essentially three complications that are introduced into the narrative by their sin. And that has to be worked out. First of all, they have a wicked engagement with the Canaanites. In other words... The way they behave toward the Canaanites is evil and destructive, and that is worked out, worked through, and changed. In other words, the situation is redeemed or restored or saved 
in Genesis chapter 38, which is the story of Judah and his sons and his daughter-in-law Tamar, who is a Canaanite. In chapter 34, the sons seek to kill the Canaanites unjustly, and it's because of their own lack of attention to their sister. They're supposed to protect their sister. They fail to do so, whether it's their fault or not. But they are at least inattentive, and instead of saying, well, we should have watched over her more carefully so this event wouldn't have happened, they murderously take revenge on the boy who seduced their sister. Judah initially seeks to kill Tamar for the same kind of thing. You remember that Tamar marries Ur, God kills him, and then she's given Onan, and God kills him, and then Judah says, yes, well, wait till Shelah grows up, and I'll give you him, and he'll be your husband, but Shelah grows up, and Judah doesn't do it. So Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and seduces Judah, and she gets pregnant, and Judah says he's going to put her to death. Well, the major sin in the passage is Judah's sin. Marrying the Canaanites in the first place, becoming involved with a prostitute, and so forth. So the situations are parallel. They're not identical, but thematically they are. Judah has got this Canaanite woman here. He's blaming her for his sins, and he's the one who visited her as a prostitute. We're going to put her to death. Well, of course, it turns out otherwise. And he repents. The second parallel is, and we noticed this last time, that the men in chapter 34 say, should they have treated our sister as a whore, as a harlot? And that's the way they say Dinah was treated. Of course, she wasn't. She wasn't treated as a harlot. And they say, this should not be done in Israel. Judah uses Tamar as a sacred harlot, which is obviously something that should not be done in Israel. If we were to study Genesis 38, you'd find that when she disguises herself as a prostitute, it's the word for a sacred prostitute. In other words, linked to a false god. So his engagement with her is not just any old woman by the side of the road, but that she's disguised as some woman who represents a false god. And so there's a religious element as well, at least hinted at, in his involvement with her. Well, again, those establish parallels between the passage. But this time, the contrast is, this time Judah sees his sin and repents of it, and this is what changes the future. In other words, unlike Simeon and Levi, they don't get into the middle of this and say, oh, we shouldn't have done this. These guys are circumcised, after all. They're our brothers. We can't kill them. No, they go on through with it, but this time Judah is brought short, and he repents of his sin, and that indicates a change. And Judah is the one who makes the changes in these passages. The second sin or zone of problems that come into the Israelite clans in chapter 34 is their violence against helpless people. And they make these people helpless. They are their brothers by circumcision. And when their brothers are helpless, because they feel offended by their brothers, they murder them all. They don't just murder the boy who seduced their sister. They murder all the people, all the men, and steal all their stuff. Well, this is picked up again. In fact, it had happened earlier. It had already happened with Joseph. Because remember, chronologically, selling Joseph into slavery happens before the events of chapter 34. As they hated Shechem without a cause, so they hated Joseph without a cause, or they had hated him. Joseph didn't do anything to them. 
but they hated him and they hated his property. And their murder of Joseph and seizure of his robe correspond to their murder of the Salemites and the seizure of their properties. And so, although that event has already happened, we don't learn about it until later in Genesis, a couple of chapters away. It's presented later on in order to show us, set us up for the change, because eventually they repent of it. Too late to do anything for the Shechemites, but Joseph's ascension into prominence, and then the story with Benjamin and his making Benjamin a surrogate for himself and giving Benjamin a lot of stuff and all the rest, it's Judah who leads them in repentance. So the problems that are brought in with these violent people who attack their brothers and murder their brothers have to be worked out, or else the covenant will be destroyed. And most importantly is the destruction of their covenant witness. Now there's no covenant witness to all these clans round about. Of course, Jacob says that they stink in the nostrils of all the people round about. Nobody's going to listen to the word of God anymore because of them. And that gets changed when Joseph converts the Egyptians and the entire world. And the world is listening to the word of God. So the sins that are committed in Genesis 34 set up the program for the narratives that follow as we have to work through those sins. And that's part of the parallel between the beginning of the narrative and this section of the narrative. One other parallel between Genesis 26 and Genesis 34 that we pointed out long ago is the association of women with wells of water. And Isaac's wells correspond to Dinah. Isaac digs wells, which if we want to translate that into a different symbolic matrix, we would say Isaac has daughters. And the Gentiles strive for these wells would be the same as the Gentiles wanting his daughters, and Isaac is willing to give them these wells and move on and dig another well in order to make peace. And at the end, you have peace and you have covenant making and you have a positive witness among these Gentiles. Abimelech and Phicol come and they say, we want to make covenant with you. And we have the well, Beersheba, and all this nice positive stuff at the end of the narrative. Now, Jacob has a daughter, which is the same as saying he has a well. And Gentiles strive for the daughter. And if the narrative had any parallel to it, they would have worked out a way for Shechem. He says, I will give you anything you want. So they could have accepted that. They could have circumcised them and made them brothers. And the Gentiles could have had the well, and we know that the parallels established that there would have been covenant-making, and, well, circumcision is the covenant-making. There would have been peace. But, to use the language of Genesis 26, this well is stopped up by the sons. They prevent any type of Beersheba, seven wells, or well of the oath. They prevent any type of marriage to a well or a daughter from taking place, and the result is the covenant is wrecked. So once you understand the symbolic relationship between marriage and wells of water, which of course we've been over a million times and everybody knows it by now, you can see how close these are. Grabbing Dinah is like grabbing Isaac's wells. And working that out can be done positively or negatively. If Isaac had said, hey, Jacob and Esau, get your men together and let's murder all these Gentiles because they took one of my wells, then... That would have been you know, the way it's handled in Genesis 34. So these kinds of things, the parallels and the contrasts, are instructive to us. 
And just to repeat, the major contrast between the two sections is that Isaac acts without his sons. Even though they're fully grown and they're on the scene, he doesn't wait and say, okay, Jacob and Esau, what do you think we ought to do when these Gentiles take our wells? Because we haven't yet become a nation. At Peniel, when God changes our name from Jacob to Israel, that's when we become a nation. And as a nation, we no longer eat the meat that's on the socket of the thigh. And now we have to make decisions as a nation and not just as a bunch. And not just as a patriarch. And so when we get to chapter 34, the big contrast is Jacob doesn't make the decision. He lets his sons make the decision. And then they create a problem. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac is to grow up and make decisions by himself. And he blows it. And he has to be replaced by Jacob. Jacob does right. Jacob has sons, and now they're going to become a nation. But they blow it. So that has to be changed by the work of Joseph. So Isaac becomes a new father. Isaac sins. Jacob has to replace him. Jacob becomes a nation, Israel. Then Israel sins in the form of these sons, and that has to be replaced or worked out. So you see the progression here. Each time God makes a covenant, the next generation down almost destroys it, and there has to be a working out of it. Isaac almost destroys it. Jacob has to replace him. The sons of Jacob almost destroy it. Joseph has to replace them. Joseph and Judah. So that's what's going on here, too. And that's the contract between the two. Isaac acts as an individual. Here in the story of Dinah, we're happy to act as a nation. And that's going to be real important in Genesis 35. Everything we're about to read in the next several weeks will be about forming this nation. We talk about kings and about the people and all of this stuff that indicates that we're moving from individuals now to nations. Well, the second preliminary thing that we can say as we get into it and review into it is to compare the F sections here on page 121. Because here again, the comparison between the two sections gets us thinking the proper way about the events. The first F section is dealing with the false son sinfully adored by Isaac. And that's the story of Jacob buying the birthright for Reynolds. What corresponds to that is burying these false gods and getting rid of the false gods. We have a false brother loved by his father, and now we have false gods. Now, what is the parallel between the two? Well, we don't have lots of gods around. We have one God, and our God is our Father. And if we had lots of gods around, gods are fathers. And so immediately think gods are like Isaac. And dealing with gods is like dealing with fathers. Gods give a direction to a culture, just as fathers do. Fathers rear children. They teach children how they're supposed to be fathers and mothers, of course, but we just coalesce them in the word father. The father sets some kinds of tones and what language is used and what you're spanked for and what you're not spanked for and what you're rewarded for. All these things are taught by fathers and mothers. And the same is true of gods. Whatever your gods are, they have rules. So Juju says every four days you don't eat meat, then every four days you don't eat meat or Juju is going to get you. Or Juju says, that mountain over there is sacred to me, except once a year you can go up on the mountain, men on one side and women on the other, 
and men and women are not allowed to see each other on that day and stay on their own sides of the mountain, well, then you'd better do it. Because Juju has set up what goes on in the society. He's the father. Until we get rid of him and get Jesus. Now, that's the parallel between these false gods on the one hand and the situation with Jacob and Esau. Nothing is said about Isaac being an idolater, but his preference for Esau's food takes us back to the garden. We don't read that Isaac had some household gods or anything like that, but he's clearly an idolater because we've got two different kinds of food here and he picks the wrong food. We're right back to Genesis 3 where we've got two trees and one of them we're not supposed to eat from and the other one we are. Moreover, by aligning himself with Satan, Isaac makes himself a false god and that's really the major issue here. He usurps God's role by rejecting God's statement that Jacob should inherit. God says Jacob should be considered firstborn. Isaac says, no, I'm the God in this situation and I won't listen to what El Shaddai has to say or Yahweh. I won't listen to it. I'll make myself God. So Isaac, making himself as a false god, creates the problems that force Jacob to have to leave. That is the major thing here. Isaac creates problems that force Jacob to have to leave. And now we have a similar situation. These household gods, these foreign gods that we find out have been in Jacob's camp right along. They are creating the problems that force Jacob to have to leave. The false gods used by Jacob's sons lie behind their sins, and they also force Jacob to leave the area of Salem. So we've got parallels here. Isaac makes himself a false god, and that produces his sin, and that produces exile of Jacob. Jacob has to leave. Similarly, we've got false gods here, and they produce this violence in chapter 34, and the result is Jacob has to leave. So the events are parallel, and they give us insight into what is going on. Isaac, in his sin, was giving direction to Esau, who is a violent man, who wants to kill Jacob. These false gods that are still hanging around Jacob's tent are giving direction to Simeon and Levi, and they're becoming like Esau, violent men who resort to murder when they get into conflict. They can't handle conflict with any wisdom. They immediately resort to force and violence. They have no patience. Jacob has patience. Abraham is taught to have patience. Esau has no patience. Esau says, I'm hungry. I can't wait a half an hour for somebody else to cook me something. I'll give up the birthright. These sons have no patience. They murder the men of Shechem instead of understanding that over the course of time, things can change. They don't have any patience. They resort immediately to violence, just as Esau did. So there's parallels and contrasts here, and these false gods are like that. You don't get any wisdom from false gods. Setting aside the false gods in chapter 35 corresponds to leaving Isaac in chapter 28. You have to leave Isaac. Isaac is a false god. Leave him behind and go somewhere else. You know, Isaac repents, but he is playing the role of the false god. We leave him behind. Here we set aside these false gods. In both cases, Jacob goes to Bethel after he leaves and encounters the true God. 
when he leaves Isaac and Esau, when he leaves this idolatrous home where Isaac has made himself a false god, he goes out and comes to Bethel. He meets the true God. Here, put aside these household gods, these false gods, and come to Bethel. We put aside the gods when we are still at Shechem or Salem, and then we go to Bethel. That's what's happening. So those are parallels and thematic relationships between these two F sections. Isaac has become an idolater because of his affection for the wrong son, the wrong food, and that's creating problems that force Jacob to leave. Here the sons, Simeon and Levi, are idolaters because they're these false gods in their midst. They're becoming like Esau. They're becoming violent, and it forces Jacob to leave. So that also helps us to understand what's going on here and the dangers. I mean, the fact that if you have a civilization that has icons or idols or anything else, those are silent. Any pagan religion is essentially wordless. Think of it with Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism, especially in those situations in Catholic and Orthodox countries, not America, where you don't have any real sermon or teaching or anything else out of the Word of God. You just have pictures. Now, if you come here or to any church that's a biblical church, you hear the Word of God, you're challenged to think differently. And if you were to confess your sins to me or to some other Christian, they might tell you some things back. And that can be uncomfortable, but it would cause you to change, and you'd have to learn, you'd have to learn to deal with other people. It's real easy, you see, to deal with an idol or a picture, because a picture never says anything back to you. And so any type of iconic religion, which is silent, never tells you anything you don't already know. If you talk to a picture of St. Anthony and say, you know, I've committed these sins, what is St. Anthony going to say back to you? Well, the only thing he can say is what's already in your imagination. You can't imagine anything except what you already know. So if you imagine that he talks to you, he's only going to say stuff you already know. He won't say anything new. He won't say anything challenging. Now that means you don't ever change. You don't ever have to learn to get along with other people because you can get along with these silent statues instead. Other people are problematic. Silent statues are not. In natural paganism, in tribal paganism, what does a religious activity consist of? You think of an Indian tribe or an African tribe or an Australian tribe or a Melanesian tribe. What does their religious activity consist of? Dancing. It consists of dancing. All you do in dancing is just kind of become part of everybody else. And if you're a wolf tribe, you do the wolf dance so that you can become part of the wolfness of everything. Or you do the bear dance so you become part of the earthenity of everything or whatever. You are not hearing language that makes you change. And in a civilized form of paganism, what does worship consist of? Well, it consists of meditation about the stars. Stars don't change. There's very slow movement in the heavens, and essentially it doesn't change. It just goes through cycles. And so in Hinduism or Islam, it's all meditation. There aren't any sermons in Islam. There aren't any preachers. And if you've ever tried to read the Koran, it's just a bunch of confusion. It's not rational writing. It's like the Oracle of Delphi. Yeah, there are words that come out of their mouth, but they don't mean anything. 
It's in tongues. Or might as well be. You hear the words, but think, what is this? There's no language. There's no challenge. You don't learn patience. All you learn is what you already know. Oh, yeah, a totem pole doesn't say anything. It's just faces. It reminds you of the ancestors. The ancestors have died and become part of the animal world. So the faces are simultaneously an animal and an ancestor. But they don't say anything. Now, of course, no culture can live without language, so there's always some, some communication in the religion of these, but not much. Uh-huh. Yeah, Quakerism is just pure paganism. The Quaker says that I've got all the information inside of me, so I don't need to hear the word at all. I just sit and wait. The idea that Quakers are Christians is very strange. Since they don't have the Bible, they're not Christians at all. They're pantheists. And they sit and they wait for the spirit to move inside of them and make them. They don't hear the word of God. They don't have sacraments. They're not Christians. Yet they, somehow or other, the Quakers are regarded as part of Christianity in America. Well, there's still Quakers around. Friends. Yeah. I understand that the brethren study the Bible, so that I would think that they get challenged by the word of God. But... Every kind of Christianity tends to collapse into tradition where you just repeat the same things and you don't hear anything new. And in Presbyterianism, you've got people who don't want to ever think about anything except the Westminster Confession and Standard. And anything that's not in there is just irrelevant. So you wind up not making any change. In Episcopalianism, you've got groups that just want to do the Book of Common Prayer and nothing else. You always fall back into this, but... The most dangerous form of it is pure idolatry where you've got statues and things that don't talk to you. Because then you're never challenged. You don't have to learn to get along with other people. You don't have to learn any kind of patience. And all of these conflicts with Abraham in Egypt, Abraham with Abimelech, Abraham with Lot, Isaac with these Gentiles, every one of them are conflicts with other people. And it's conflicts with other people and learning patience that teaches you to become mature. If, when you get into conflicts with other people, you just pull out the sword, which is what usually happens, apart from Christ, then you don't learn anything. You don't mature. And so, these silent gods are very much part of the violence that we just read about. You're not being challenged and forced to think about new things. Instead, you're just hearing yourself over and over and over again as you look in the mirror. One other thing we'll do before we stop, remember that there's also a second way to outline this passage, the entire Jacob narrative. Again, these two small f sections we've already looked at, the Gentiles, what correspond to each other in this way of outlining well, let me just remind you, the larger outline, which I call the first narrative structure, has at its center the birth of the children. The second narrative structure has at its center the wrestling at Peniel, where Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Now, those two things link to each other, because Israel means nation, and it's all these children that are born that are becoming Israel. So... The fact that one way of outlining the passage puts the change of the name to Israel at the center, and the other way of outlining it puts the children at the center, that's not an accident. That's deliberate. The two things that are at the center do go together, the children and Israel. 
forming into a nation. Well, this second narrative structure puts the wrestling at Peniel at the center, and what this does is it brings the two Bethel events into parallel. We leave, we go to Bethel, we encounter God as we leave the promised land, and now we come back to Bethel here in chapter 35, and we want to think just a little bit about the comparison between the two before we move into the detail. Not only do we arrive at Bethel in both cases, but the details are very similar. As mentioned, we arrive after leaving behind false gods. We're leaving behind these gods on our way to Bethel to leave behind Isaac and Esau on the way to Bethel the first time out. What happens here in this situation is God appears to him and reiterates to him the blessing of many peoples, but in different language. We'll come back to this, but in chapter 28, at Bethel, at the ladder that reaches up to heaven, and sees God at the top of the ladder, and God says, Your seed will be like the dust of the earth, and you will burst forth to the sea to the east to the north and the south, and all the clans of the soil will find their blessing through you and through your seed. Your seed will be like the dust of the earth. Now what does that tell you? What do you get from that? What is dust like? Well, dust is just a swarm of things. It's not organized. We're just saying you're going to have a whole lot of descendants. But when the promise is repeated on the other side of Peniel here, in Genesis 35, he says, An assembly of nations will come forth from you. Kings will go out from your loins. In other words, it's organized groups of people are promised to it. So we've shifted from having many sons to those sons organized into political units, into nations with kings over them. And what's happened in the meantime is that his name has been changed to Israel, and Israel has the national implications. With Abraham, you're going to have lots of sons. With Isaac, you'll have lots of sons. With Jacob, you'll have lots of sons. But now we've moved from just having sons and being a patriarchal situation into the beginning of a national situation, you're going to have nations. Now, we've seen that these sons have to act together and they act in a violent way. I've made this point a while back, I'll just touch on it again here. These sins of violence that begin to show up here in Genesis, the violence against Joseph, the violence here, are pushing us in the direction of needing a law. A nation has a bunch of people in it. A nation has the danger of violence breaking out. No longer little patriarchal groups, but you've got to have law. And so the problems that are showing up here in the last part of Genesis are moving us towards Sinai, which is when we come together as an assembly of nations or tribes. He says nations will come from you, an assembly of nations will come from you. It means tribes and the assembly of tribes. One nation, which consists of several, 12, 13 tribes. They're going to come together in Mount Sinai and get law. And the law will be there to prevent the kind of outbreaks of violence that we're seeing here in Genesis. So, our attention is being shifted from simply obeying God by faith and worshiping at an altar to something more complicated, more advanced, that is a written law code not just the Father's advice and wisdom, but now something in writing 
and establish courts and the like because we're going to have a lot more people and we're going to become a nation and not just a clan. So that's an important shift between the two events because of what God has done to Jacob in the meantime. Other parallels in chapter 35, it says that at the end God went up from him. Back in chapter 28, God had appeared at the top of the ladder. In both situations, Jacob sets up a pillar and pours oil on it as a memorial. And we looked at that before, we'll look at it again. Set up this pillar and you pour oil on it and that is a symbolic representation of God's ladder to heaven and the influences of God coming down. And another parallel that I think is important is that right after we come to Bethel, we leave the idolatrous house of Isaac. Isaac is a false god. We leave him behind. We go to Bethel and meet the true God, and we go on and we meet Rachel. We marry Rachel. What happens now is we leave these false gods behind. We go to Bethel and encounter God, and then Rachel dies. So those two things are important too. And in fact, when Rachel dies... What Jacob does is he sets up another pillar, which indicates a connection between God's appearing to him and this ladder to heaven, and what he expects of Rachel. Rachel will ascend to heaven. She's part now of the host of God, angels ascending and descending. That doesn't mean that Rachel becomes an angel. People don't become angels. Unless they're Mormons, Mormons become angels when they die, but the rest of us don't. But Rachel... She's now considered as part of God's heavenly hope because she's died. Something that's on our minds today. So that's what this pillar that's set up means and we'll get to it in due course. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.